So in, in talking about where we wanted to go for our lessons early this year, um, we've kind of settled on sorting out what are the basics of the faith. Um, eventually we'll get into the Bible and different genres and how to read it correctly and whatnot. But for now, we kind of want to just get feel on what is, what is the foundation of the faith and what do, we, what do we identify as far as our beliefs are concerned with what is foundational, let's say. And uh, in the last two services, uh, the first one, Reese talked about how we believe in God Almighty, the Creator, and how He's holy and perfect and separate from us and yet how we were made in his image. And the week after that, uh, Forrest actually brought the Apostles' Creed forward. And the Apostles' Creed is an early document that kind of succinctly uh, draws out what the early church majored on. I'm going to read it quickly because um, I'm going to elaborate a bit on what Forrest started last week and try to take kind of a bird's-eye view of the biblical narrative so that we get kind of idea of start to finish what our faith is about, how we come to our worldview and what it consists of. So there might be some repetition, um, which is good. And there's an exhortational aspect to it as well. So this is the Apostles Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead, and on the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. So one of the things that was talked about last week, a little more explicitly, is the fact that we have, in this Apostles' Creed, the idea of the Trinity. We have God the Father Almighty, His Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. And we also have the Church, those who believe in Him. And in the Church, we have this idea that at the end, we'll all be resurrected and there'll be judgment, salvation for some and condemnation for others. But that's like the general gist of Christianity. Um, if you go to 1 Corinthians 15, Paul said, I, I delivered to you of first importance that Christ died according to the scriptures for our sins and on the third day rose again and he goes on from there. And that's, that's central to Christianity. But... We want to look at the rest of the worldview. And so Christianity is a revealed faith that is apocalyptic. And what that means is that God has actually shown himself to us. That's what revelation is. And that revelation has come slowly, progressively over time. And in that revelation, God has shown us that he has a plan that will be revealed and completed in the end, right? So we have this really beautiful, robust, complex worldview that God has brought to us in the scriptures through history, and it's got lots of nuts and bolts. You know, there's going to be people in this congregation right now who are going to look at the Bible, 
there's going to be different things in the Bible that are emphatic to them. Things that are going to influence them in their daily life at different times. And we're not always going to see everything the same way because God is speaking to us as individuals. But he's also spoken in his word corporately, right? And so what we want to do here is what, what's the simple big picture narrative of the scripture? And we're looking at the Apostles' Creed to kind of get a, a grasp on where that starts. And so this is what I'm going to do. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul says, These three remain, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. So what are those three things? In our context today, I want to look at faith. And by faith, I mean what we believe about God by what he has said, what he's revealed, what he's done in revealing himself to us, as well as who he says we are, ultimately establishing a relationship of loyal trust in us towards him. Okay? So once again, faith is, in our context, what we're talking about, faith, what God has revealed about himself, and how we respond to that. So, you know, truth is about God, are what motivate us to follow him. It affects how we follow him. Abraham believed God at his word. There was something trustworthy about Yahweh that Abraham was able to latch onto so that he would leave his family and his homeland and all of the enterprise that he was in so that to go into the promised land, right? In the same way, we have all these great promises that God gives us in the Bible and that affects how we live. We worship God because, like Reese taught two weeks ago, He is Almighty. He's Creator. He's perfect. He is our judge. We trust in Christ because He was made like us in every way. So we know that He is a gracious and understanding High Priest. The Holy Spirit is said to be given to us to work in our hearts so we can live for God and be made new. And all these things, these truths that God has communicated, affect our faith, how we respond to God. So faith is very important. What we believe is very important. Hope. You know how I said that our faith, our belief is apocalyptic? We have a hope. We have a hope in resurrection. We have a hope in the restoration of the entire cosmos. We'll get into that later, but there's problems in the world, right? We see sin. We see violence. We see famine. All kinds of things that, that hurt us and bring us sorrow and despair. And Christianity brings hope. Jesus brings hope. He said that I've, I've come so that you may have life and have it abundantly. Right? So we have a hope in Christ. And how we view our hope is important because it's what we look forward to. So we have to have a proper view of hope. And finally, love, which is the disposition and how all these things are worked out. In that passage, Paul says that, you know, I can know all things and have prophecy, and yet if I don't have love, I'm nothing, right? Or I can be charitable and I can give my body over the flames and give all I own to people, but if I don't have love, I gain nothing. There's this aspect of having the right knowledge of God. There's an aspect of knowing what our hope is. And yet, if we lack love in those things, we will be lacking. Right? It, it won't matter if we don't have love. The two greatest commandments are what? 
Same old. Okay, right? Those are the greatest commandments. If there's no love in you, it doesn't matter that you know things about God or your worldview or that you have a hope for heaven, let's say, if you're not loving. So, one more thing from 1 Corinthians 13. Faith, hope, and love are the three things that remain. But Paul, he says something else very important in that passage. He says, when I was a child, I thought like a child, and so on and so forth, reason like a child. But when I became a man, I put those things away. And the point about faith, hope, and love is to grow into maturity. We want to have a faith that's well-rounded so we can understand God and his commands for us, who he is, so we can be loyal to him. We need to have a grounded faith so that when we look forward to the future, we're looking forward to the right thing. We have proper expectations. And then in that, all of that needs to be bolstered by a disposition that is loving. Loving towards God and loving towards neighbor. So, one of the places Forrest went to last week was Genesis. He looked at the creation of man. And so, mankind was made in the image of God, correct? Okay, let's look at what that constitutes. Let's go back there just quickly. Because, again, like I said, we want to look at the whole narrative arc of the Bible and what our purpose is as people. So in Genesis 1, God says, verse 26, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Listen carefully. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and the livestock, the whole earth and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. Later on, you see man in the garden. And it says that God puts man in the garden to work and watch the garden and organize the garden. And he makes a woman out of the man's rib to be able to help him in that regard. Okay, so the image of God then is the rulership and dominion of the creation that God made. We are, in our creation, God's emissaries. We are called to rule and reign over creation. That is bearing the image. At creation, it says that God took the dust of the earth, okay? He formed that dust into a man, and from God's own life breath, he blew into the man, and the man became a living soul. Now, what's interesting is that in that Hebrew phrase, living soul, nefesh hayah, that same phrase is used for animals. Animals also have the breath of life in them, and when the flood comes and destroys the living creatures, it's all the things that have the breath of life in them that die. Okay, So animals are living souls, so as Adam is a living soul. And the difference is, bearing the image gives you the privilege and responsibility of cultivating, nurturing, and ruling over creation. So that's, that's man's first estate, is to go rule over creation 
and expand the garden, right? Create culture, have lots of kids, and propagate that kingdom that God had created in Eden. Now, now we have violence and we have death and sin, and that precludes us from following through rightly on God's design. Um, what were the two big trees in the middle of the garden? Yeah. Yeah, very good. And so the tree of life was there to extend Adam and Eve's and their progeny's life indefinitely. If you have access to the tree of life, you will live forever. So God makes Adam and Eve alive and he conditions their continuance on obedience. And he, he says you cannot eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if you do, you will surely die. Well, he says... In the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. And there's this terrible thing that happens. Eve is deceived by the serpent, and they eat Adam and his wife, and they are barred from the tree of life. And it says that, lest they stretch out their hand and eat forever, they must not be allowed to eat of it. And God curses the land and the woman and the man. And he says this thing in chapter 3, verse 19. He says, To the man you will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground, since you are taken from it, for you are dust, and you will return to dust. You look around culture today, and a hundred years ago, and a thousand years ago, and three thousand years ago, death is the enemy. It has been since the beginning. We grapple with this. In fact, there's basically an entire book written about the vanity of life because of death. Um, Forrest brought up a, a passage in Ecclesiastes, uh, chapter 5 here. Let's go there for a second. Again, I, I will admit some of this is a reiteration of what's been said already, but I want to expand on some of the ideas. Okay, okay so five is also similar. I will read from five. It says kind of the same thing. So death is an enemy and life is good. Here's what I have seen to be good. This is Ecclesiastes chapter five and verse 18. Let's give you guys just a couple more seconds to get there. Here's what I have seen to be good. It's appropriate to eat, to drink, and experience good in all the labor one does under the sun during the few days of his life God has given him, because that is his reward. Furthermore, everyone to whom God has given riches and wealth he has also allowed him to enjoy them, take his reward, and rejoice in his labor. And this is a gift of God. Life is truly good. Life is a gift of God. And we ought to enjoy it. But, you go to the next chapter, and you see that life is stymied. Good people work hard and, and their lives are cut short. They don't get to enjoy 
the goodness that God puts in the world. There's evil in the world. And, then, and also, bad people who continually reject God, who are violent towards fellow men, they prosper. Right? Psalm 37 is all about that. The psalmist is lamenting the fact that evil people sometimes prosper and they go to their graves without judgment and, and it's, it's a travesty. And the psalmist is, is wanting God to judge. Right? And there's commentary about that. So, our state as human beings, and this is a state that we haven't lost, is to image God. But we're faced with mortality. But, this is the thing, this is part of that revelation that comes over time. In Ecclesiastes it says, well, it's vanity and all we have is you know, the gift that God gives us for a short time because we die. But you start to hear rumblings in the Old Testament, in Isaiah, in Job, in Daniel, that there's this thing called resurrection. There's the undoing of the journey to dust. Remember how God formed man out of the dust of the earth and he became a living soul? And he said, because you have sinned, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Well, if we go to Isaiah, who was one of those very important prophets in the Old Testament, he says a few things in promise about that death. Just give me a moment to find my reference here. So, later on in the New Testament, resurrection becomes the, the principal aim of, of our hope. Right? Jesus died. He was incarnate. The Word of God was made incarnate. He died on the cross and rose again bodily. And all throughout the New Testament, it talks about resurrection being our hope. And here, here God is speaking to the people of Israel in Isaiah, and we see a foreshadow of this. It says, Isaiah chapter 25, starting in verse 6. This is a promise. On this mountain, Mount Zion, the Lord of armies will prepare for all the people's a feast of choice meat, a feast with aged wine, prime cuts of choice meat, fine vintage wine. On this mountain he will destroy the burial shroud, the shroud over all the peoples, the sheet covering all the nations. He will destroy death forever. The Lord God will wipe away the tears from every face and remove his people's disgrace from the whole earth. For the Lord has spoken. Does that sound familiar? Remember reading Revelation chapter 21? The New Jerusalem? God will wipe every tear from their, from their face. Right? So this, even before the New Testament, there's this hope of man's death being reversed by the great promise of God. I just want to, want to reiterate that the theme within the Old Testament is that we are mortal and we go 
we go to the dust. If we want to go to uh, Job for a second, it's another place that, that talks about this. There's many other places, but um, for now, let's go to Job 34. We're doing this kind of as a survey just to get into what would have been the worldview of the Old Testament. And I'm saying this kind of in a parenthesis because we live 2,000 years after Christ. We're in a multicultural age. And growing up, depending if you've been in public school or you've been you know, in friendship with maybe Eastern Asian people or, or whatever else, you have different worldviews that are brought, brought forward, right? You have the idea that, well, maybe we're reincarnated and we don't really have a human soul per se, but we have a soul perhaps. And, you know, if you're starting at the bottom, maybe you're a dog. And then if you live kind of a good dog life, you'll be reincarnated into something better, right? And then maybe you'll be something more noble like an elephant and so on and so forth until you're a man. And then eventually you ascend to Nirvana, right? That, maybe you grew up with that. There's a, there's a place for, for ministry in, in people groups where you're having to talk against something like that. Or maybe you grew up Mormon and your Mormon belief was that you're a spirit baby and you, exa- you actually existed as a, a spirit baby before you got a, bo- a body, right? And then when you were born, you got a body, right? Or maybe you grew up an atheist and you're just stardust. You're not made in the image of God. And you, through natural occurrences, became a human being. And when you die, there's absolutely nothing, right? There's all these different ideas of what constitutes humanity. But the Bible, in its basic narrative, says these things. We're dust, made in the image of God, that the breath of life from God is what makes us alive. And resurrection is what secure his eternal life for us. Let's go to Job for a minute. Okay, so we are in Job 34. And this is speaking of God. And we'll start in verse 10. It says, Therefore listen to me, you men of understanding. It's impossible for God to do wrong and for the Almighty to act unjustly. For he repays a person according to his deeds. And he gives them what his conduct deserves. Indeed, It is true that God does not act wickedly, and the Almighty does not pervert justice. Who gave him authority over the earth? Who put him in charge of the entire world? It's an interesting rhetorical question. Who put God in authority over the whole world? Well, God did, of course. But, listen. If he, that is God, put his mind to it, and withdrew the spirit and breath he gave, every living thing would perish together, and mankind would return to the dust. In Ecclesiastes, the writer says, what's the difference between man and beast? We all return to the dust when we give up our breath. We don't actually know if the breath of man goes up to God and the breath of beast goes down into the earth. We don't know. That's that's what the writer of Ecclesiastes says. And so we see, in a very strong sense throughout the Old Testament, that mankind is of, of the earth, right? Paul even says that in 1 Corinthians 15, that the first man was of the earth. He was fleshly, right? Man of earth. 
And our lives are contingent on God maintaining us. So life is a provisional gift that God gives. It's good, but because of sin, our lives are cut short. And unfortunately, we don't have access to the tree of life to maintain our lives. So we have a problem. Okay? Now that is what we would say biblical anthropology is teaching. Okay? So that's the beginning. We finished off last week in Romans. And this is where my exhortation and kind of tying this together comes from. Romans chapter 5 is kind of a perplexing passage to interpret, especially on the fly. So verses 12 through to 21 are, are that interesting passage. And when we look at the faith, again, big picture-wise, um, we start thinking about things like salvation. The question was asked, what is salvation? And we had, we had a lot of different answers, and they were all very close, and they were true. It was about you know, being given eternal life, being saved from sin, um, having right relationship with God, a bunch of things. But there's more to it than what happens at the end. And chapter 5 through 6, through 7, and through 8 is salvation, not in a nutshell, but in a process of what it is in life totally. So we have Adam and Eve, mankind who was created to image God on the earth. We're called to reign and rule over the animal kingdom, to have lots of kids, and hopefully live forever through obedience and access to the tree of life. And when sin enters the world, starting in verse 12, Romans 5, it says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, in this way death spread to all people, because all sinned. So death came into the world because of Adam. And now we all sin, and we all die, and we have a problem. We have a problem that we cannot fix. When Adam and Eve ate from the tree of knowledge and good and evil, there's this relationship that started between us and God where we got what we deserved. The trespass deserves death. That's what the trespass deserves. When we read Romans, we see that through the works of the law, no one will be made righteous. We can have a command to do good, to do as we ought. And we may at times, with external behavior, do what we ought. But the problem is, we, we also do what we ought not to do, and therefore we're guilty, and we still have that wage of sin, which Paul says in 6.23 is death. Right? So the trespass gives us death. But the free gift gives us eternal life. And so, when we read through chapter 5, there's this thing that says, 
that the trespass is not like the gift. God compares, or sorry, Paul compares Adam's trespass and Christ's perfect obedience. And through Christ's perfect obedience, we are able, through grace, to come into eternal life. And you would ask the question, why is the trespass different than the gift, when Paul is comparing the two? And the difference is, in chapter 4 of Romans, Paul talks about Abraham being justified by faith. And he says this thing, and, and this is just a little key to understanding chapter 5 of Romans. Now it says, Abraham believed God was credited to him for righteousness. Now, the one who works, pay is not credited as a gift, but as something owed. But to the one who does not work, but believes on him who declares the ungodly to be righteous, his faith is credited for righteousness. And that's why the trespass is not like the gift. Because the trespass is all about working, right? We know what is right and wrong because of that knowledge of good and evil, because of the tree. Our conscience, whether we know the law or not, will excuse us or uh, accuse. accuse us. Excuse or, or accuse, right? But the problem is we do work to, to ill. And so we're, we're due a wage for that. Now, the beauty is that the gift is free. So Christ does the work. He does the perfect work. And through faith and grace, we are able to inherit that life and start to undo what the penalty was. So the penalty was death. And what's, what's the penalty? Dissolution to dust, right? Job said, if God takes his breath away, all flesh would perish and return to dust. God told Adam and Eve, well, specifically Adam, that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. We read in Isaiah that God will defeat death and, and destroy death through resurrection. And I just realized that I forgot to read chapter 26 because it goes hand in hand with 25. I'll do that quickly. I'm sorry, guys. Um, Twenty-six, twelve says, Lord, you will establish peace for us, for you have also done all our work for us. Christ has done all the work for us. Lord, our God, lords other than you have owned us, but we remember your name alone. The dead do not live. Departed spirits do not rise up. Indeed, you have punished and destroyed them. You have wiped out all memory of them. But, he promises, later on, verse 19, your dead will live. Their bodies will rise, awake and sing, you who dwell in the dust, for you will be covered with the morning dew, and the earth will bring out the departed spirits, or those who have passed, depending on the translation. So, as God is revealing our faith to us, we see that we're dust, we return to dust, and victory over death is from coming out from that dust. We have a calling and a life that is grounded in this creation. And next week, Reese is going to talk about the incarnation of Christ. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was God, or was with God, and the Word was God. And He created all things. And He was made flesh and dwelt among us. There's something so incredible 
about the fact that God who created all things steps into creation, bears flesh and blood just like us, and he tastes death just like us. Because remember, Adam and Eve's calling, and our calling too, is primarily embodied. Okay, it's not about out there, it's about the now. And so, in the incarnation and our forgiveness, salvation then becomes not something that happens at the end, but it starts, starts in the here and now. And this is where Paul goes on in Romans 6 through to 8. So Christ has come and we have this faith. And here's our hope. That... The spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, if he lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his spirit who lives in you. So then, brothers and sisters, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh. The knowledge of good and evil and our disobedience alienated us from God and it corrupted our mandate, corrupted our mandate to take proper rulership of the earth, and it led to violence and all manner of sin. And so salvation comes, and it says that in verse 20 of chapter 5, the law came to multiply the trespasses, but where sin is multiplied, grace multiplied even more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness, resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Through one man's disobedience, the many, that was us before Christ, were made sinners. And through the one man, that is Christ Jesus, the many, those who are in Christ, are made righteous. So that starts at the moment you believe, you are called and declared righteous before God. And now we ask the question, what do we do now for the rest of our lives then? If Adam and Eve, Eve had a calling... Before they fell, what is our calling now? Does that mean that because we're forgiven of sin, we can just go on sinning as grace increases? Paul says no. Far be it from us that we would sin because grace increases. So let's go, after all that, into chapter 6, 7, and 8. And I'm not going to read all of it because that would take another probably 15 or 20 minutes. But I'm going to give a brief overview. So... Paul says that Christ came and all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. Now if we die with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him because we know that Christ having been raised from the dead, will not die again. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all time, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires, and do not offer any parts of it to sin as weapons for unrighteousness. But as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God, and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. For sin will not rule over you, because you are not under the law, but under grace. 
Adam got what he deserved. Eve got what she deserved. We all will get what we deserve unless we come to faith. Unless that righteousness of Christ is given to us by that grace. And so, what does Paul say? He says the Christian has literally died to sin just like Christ died to sin. And because Christ died and has risen again and will never die again, so too we will live again. But they go together. This idea of salvation at the end, I'm going to have eternal life, goes together with, what does it go together with? You have died to sin. Therefore, offer your body as weapons for righteousness. Right? Don't let sin rule in your body. Right? So salvation is about a transformed life. It's not out there. It's now. When Jesus came, what did he say? Behold, the kingdom is near. The kingdom is coming. Right? When Adam and Eve were created, they were called to create a kingdom. Right? Rule, dominion, and authority. Right? They lost that because of sin. Jesus comes, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now go and make disciples of all nations. So here we are in salvation. We're called to start that dominion mandate all over again. It's the beauty of the now and the not yet. So we're freed from sin and free to live for God. Grace is beautiful because it takes the consequence of sin, it reverses it, so we're free from it, and it empowers us to live righteously, right? Because Paul says, we are literally to consider ourselves dead to sin. Just like Christ died to sin, so too we die to sin. When you were slaves of sin, you were free with regard to righteousness. So what fruit was produced then from the things you are now ashamed of? The outcome of those things is death. But now, since you have been set free from sin, and you have become enslaved to God, you have your fruit, which results in sanctification, and the outcome is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Adam, we look at good and evil as things that we fight against on our own, and we get what we deserve. In Adam, that is our lot. In Christ, by grace and faith in him, we're given righteousness and eternal life. So, the response is humility. That's the hope, the faithfulness, the loving. And returning to the idea of trying to earn that life to God puts us in the old position that we were being destroyed by it. It's a really cool parallel in chapter 6 and 7 where Paul really qualifies death. He says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And he says, in the law, when a woman is married, she's married to her husband so long as he lives. Right? But when the husband dies, she's freed from her husband when he dies. Right? So he's talking about literal death there. And so if she goes and she marries another, she's considered an adulteress. 
But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. Then if she is married to another man, she is not an adulteress. And Paul uses this analogy about that idea of the knowledge of good and evil and the law being compelled by it. In Christ, we're set free from that. It says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you also were put to death in relation to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. You belong to him who was raised from the dead in order to be, that we may bear fruit for God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions aroused through the law were working in us to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law since we have died to what held us so that we may serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the old letter of the law. The rest of chapter 7 is about that tension that one would feel between knowing what is good and what is right and what is evil and what, what you ought to do and what, what you ought not to do and not having the power to do what you need to do or not to. And Paul says the deliverance for that is the spirit. And when we get into chapter 8, after all that, he says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. The flesh, or sorry, the body, is going to die because of sin. But, this is the but, the spirit gives life. All of us in this room, unless the Lord comes sooner, <laughs> will die. And it is the Spirit's work in us that will raise us to new life. And so salvation is about this active work of the Spirit, both to secure righteousness now, in the present, to release us from sin, but to also take that consequence of being put into the dust and reverse it. And this is the biblical worldview. The biblical worldview is embodied life that was robbed by sin, where we are fully mortal, and the reversal of that is resurrection by the Spirit through faith in Christ. While we're saved, we need to consider ourselves dead to sin, because we truly are. We're truly dead to sin if we're in Christ. And it's the Spirit in us that cries, Abba, Father, that says to us, you are not obligated to follow that nature that was destroying you. Even the consequence of those wrong actions has been washed away because you have actually died with Christ. That guilty verdict that we all had has been nailed to the cross if you are in Christ and you are a new creature a new creation. You're married to another. Your life is bound to Christ. You're married to Christ. And so, that original state, ruling over creation, of being in harmony with God, of being in harmony with your fellow man, of being in harmony with the creation, is something that is going to slowly work its way out as God reveals himself and reconciles the world to himself. It says in 2 Corinthians that God was in Christ reconciling the whole world to himself. And that's the, that's the end game, is that Christ comes back and Christ becomes all in all. I'll read one more scripture. Because this is important. 
the creation that God established in the beginning is very good. We have been told through various and different philosophies that the flesh is bad, that physical creation is maybe evil, if not only neutral, not actually very good. And God comes back in Christ and renovates all things. Christ will be all in all. God will be all in all. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he abolishes all rule and all authority and all power. For he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death. For God has put everything under his feet. Now when it says everything is put under him, under him, it is obvious that he who puts everything under him is the exception. So when everything is subject to Christ, then the Son himself will also be subject to the one who subjected everything to him, so that God may be all in all. This is the restoration of all things. The biblical worldview is two bookends. There's creation and recreation with this beautiful thing in the middle called the cross that brings all things together. In Ephesians, it says that God's purpose in Christ was to bring all things together, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. And our state as human beings, as embodied creatures of dust, doesn't change. We get resurrected out of the dust and we are renovated. So in the meantime, let this be our mind. I'm going to read from uh, Ephesians chapter 5. Pay careful attention then to how you live, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. So don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Don't get drunk on wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled by the Spirit. Remember, the Spirit is what gives life. It is what secures our salvation. It is what brings us new life. So day by day, consider your life. Pay attention. I've been reminded that I need to be sober-minded lately. That's one of the things that God has really convicted me in. It's very easy to be distracted these days all sorts of noises, whether it's in media or work or family, you need to consider how to live and be sober-minded and to be full of the Spirit.